I was thinking specifically of like the post-World War II generation, uh, which will come up at the, the opening of this episode, a generation that of Japanese students that don't know how to use chopsticks. You know what, Bo? Hey, you were the person who taught me how to use chopsticks. <laughs> we were at a pho restaurant. I think it was like you, me, and maybe David. Pho. Yeah, okay. That sounds familiar. I asked for a fork. Oh, shit. I do remember this. And I shamed you. I publicly shamed you. You oh, flat out said, like, if you eat that with a fork, I'm walking out. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Young punk Brian. And I was like, well, if you want me to use these, you got to teach me because I got no clue. I'm sorry, man. It built character. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Pem Pem Pals Footy Goody for our FL Climax. And we're very excited to be here with you. Uh, as always, my name is Alex. And with me, I have my two co-hosts. Hey, this is Brian. Hey, and I'm Ben. And in addition to them, we, as always, we like to bring fresh, wonderful face guests to uh, our audience. And this week, we have someone coming all the way from Colorado, so a whopping two-hour time difference. Uh, we've got Bob. Is it Bob? Bob. Yeah, man. Go by Bob. I've been called way worse. <laughs> awesome. You and Brian go back quite a ways right going about 20 years back holy crap oh, wow. was it that long dude i was just a wee young little little pup <laughs> you know i think my earliest memory of you is changing brake pads in your uh, driveway that sounds about right that's wild at the lake house you called me spanky that might be my first memory <laughs> of you <laughs> All right, so our guest today is spanky from denver colorado <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really excited to uh, have a discussion with you. Uh, have Is this your first time going through FLCL or do you have any other experience with it? I vaguely remember seeing it like on Adult Swim or uh, Toonami, but never watched it. It always confused me. And then do you have any experience with other anime? Do you have like a history with anime or is it kind of out of your wheelhouse? Uh, it's, it's new to me. My oldest nephew, we were hanging out. And I popped on his Hulu and I was like, well, you like anime. Let's see what animes you got on here. So I popped on Food Wars, which was <laughs> weird and awkward, which is my favorite interaction with my nephew. Um, cool. And so I started watching that. And then uh, I got into, is it wrong to try to pick up girls in a dungeon? Great title. Just been exploring from there. Plunderer really hooked me on their first season. Yeah, just expanding out from there, finding cool, new, weird stuff to watch. Yeah, it's kind of like his adolescence into anime. Whoa. Uh, yeah, but Food Wars, that's either an awesome or terrible first anime to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe both. I don't know. Well, it worked for me. It got me cooking yet. I love cooking and yeah. I hadn't cooked in a while and started watching that. It's like, all right, well, let's make up some ribeyes covered in gochujang. Or... <laughs> that's awesome. Start tossing black garlic and stuff. Black garlic. Uh, it's a fermented garlic. It comes from Korea. I heard you were a musician too. Do you play bass? Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit of a beer drinking basement bassist. Um, we, we get so many bassists on this show for some reason. Because of Haruko, because of the Rickenbacker. <laughs> Do you see? Well, and that Rick is just such an iconic bass. The 4003, I had one in ruby red. Hey, this is Future Editing Alex, and it's actually the 4001 model of Rickenbacker bass. Uh, that's my fault for referring to it as the 4003 before we started recording. Oh, really? She got stolen from me when my house got broken into a few years back. And since then, Rickenbacker has stopped producing Ruby Red altogether. That's And uh, finding a used one, you're lucky if you find one. And if you do, it's three grand or more. 
but that's okay. I picked up a four string Explorer. That's been my, my happy little replacement. Well, even they threw in the uh, flying V towards the end of the FLCL series. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a Gibson EB base as well at some point. Man, hell of an eye. (laughs) So I think we've asked this to previous guests and I've read a little bit about the significance of the the Rickenbacker, but I still don't have a lot of clarity. Like, what does that mean to you? Does it embody something? Does it have a reputation? So the Rick is like the American base. If it was a car, it'd be a Cadillac. If it was Hmm. a meal... It would be a ribeye and a baked potato. They've never been made outside of America, and they're very, very Western. Lenny Kilmister, Motorhead, played it, and he idolized Western society. Uh, You know, he was a British cowboy, kind of. Uh, Oh, yeah. Paul McCartney played a Mm. 4003S without the white binding on the corners. You know, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World also had a 4003 in it. It's amazing. uh, (laughs) You said it's the most American bass you can think of? Yeah, it's not a versatile bass. It represents America in tonality as well. It's big and chunky. It's a long scale. So you can get gnarly open E-tones and pure mud if you want. But it's not versatile. You can't use that same instrument to get really bright tones and more of a jazz sort of feel. Mm-hmm. So I guess you won't be playing The Cure with a uh, Rick 4003. I mean, I can play some Rush with it. I mean, Getty Lee played a 4003 for a while before he switched to a Fender. And the Gibsons they use. Gibsons are all made in America. If they had put in an Epiphone instead, and there have been Epiphone flying Vs, but Gibsons are all made in either Montana or Tennessee. Meanwhile, Epiphones are made in China now. That's amazing. I'm just loving your statement on it being decidedly American because Haruko has some very American aspects to her. Uh, And she's already been coded as foreign through her use of a Vespa as opposed to a Japanese equivalent like a rabbit. Uh, So that being an an iconically American thing is... It's amazing. <laughs> well, something I noticed is is you look at what cars are in the series, and I noticed an Alfa Romeo, at least two different Volkswagens. So it's weird that they would throw those in there. I don't I don't know much about Japanese car culture of the early nineties mm-hmm. as far as foreign cars, but it just seemed a bit out of place. Is uh. Alfa Romeo uh, is that an Italian car? Yeah. Okay, so they're using German and Italian cars in it. <laughs> This is really speaking to a lot of things that's been on my mind about this series that have been making me flip my perspective back and forth. And I think it just flipped again, but we can get there later. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, um, I um, watched a talking to a video recently, and that is one of the nerd dumbs that they go into a little bit where it's these like anime people sitting around a bar talking about, you know, what foreign cars they like want to buy. And Whoa. so it could be that there's just some car nerds on the staff paying attention to those kind of details. Mm. And it's weird because, I mean, the Bosu Zaku, I want to say, had to have been around in the 90s and 2000s when this was being made and as insane as this show is i wonder why they didn't throw in any bosuzaku cars or mopeds or vans Hmm. because that is the most japanese car culture i can think of bosuzaku b-o-s-o-z-o-k-u and it's like that would have been an interesting addition into the show Mm -hmm. as a as an answer to westernization is personal sense of identity that's not replicated anywhere else 
Yes. Yes. Wow. Blow my mind, man. You said you didn't understand the show very much. <laughs> well, Bohe's yeah. notes helped out a whole hell of a lot. And I think it was in your notes or maybe in a conversation I had about how there are some parallels with Hiroshima and the droppings of the bombs. But I mean, World War II directly influenced the start of Honda. What? So Honda, uh, I can't remember his name, Mr. Honda. Uh Uh-huh. I think it's E, E Honda. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Very good fighter, (laughs) that guy. (laughs) But he would get up on a hill with his binoculars and wait for American planes to fly over and drop their fuselage. Or not their fuselage, their fuel tank. They would jettison it once it was empty. Mm -hmm. And he would go grab it and sell the metal for scrap, sell the fuel how he could. And that's what started Honda. And if I remember correct, Honda's first vehicle was a motorcycle. Whoa. Might want to fact check me on this because it's folklore that I remember from years ago. Future Alex, fact check that. This is Future Alex. Don't tell me what to do, but that is correct. There, there, <laughs> there is something, I forget if it's Honda or Toyota, but one of them apologized relatively recently for using like prisoners of war to mine metals for their like manufacturing. And- There's a lot of that going around. A lot of cultural shame, right? Yeah, it's complicated. You guys are amazing. Okay, let's watch this thing together so it's fresh and then we'll discuss let's have a fun lunch time using chopsticks regular use of chopsticks can help prevent alzheimer's disease for grandpa and grandma Hi. that's because chopsticks exercise your brains you can do it just like Why are you yelling? Hurry up and sit down! Hi! You are! What are you doing just sitting there like nothing happened? You're a fugitive! You're wanted! Ah, I forgot to mention, Haruko-san asked me for a little time off. She went to Hawaii! She brought back some spicy fish eggs! She's just as bad as Medical Mechanica! You're not going to get what you want from her! Fight back! Take her out! I had a lot of speculations at the end of my notes, and uh, they were from my first impression of watching this the first time through. Uh, so that's my disclaimer. It's I've been thinking a lot about this, and it's flipped a few times. Everybody ready? Uh, Brian, do you want to lead us in since you did such a wonderful job on this outline or not? Yeah, I want to I want to default to our charismatic leader here. <laughs> oh, OK. OK, cool, cool, cool. So we start off with, I mean, a wonderful riff from a, is it a base? I feel like it's a base. Uh, and the classroom is Nauta and Nina Mori serving. I think it's supposed to be like a traditional Japanese lunch to the sixth grade class. And it's for the purpose of teaching them how to use hashi uh, chopsticks, which I assumed everyone knew at that yeah. age. I mean, they're like clicking their chopsticks. Like they know what they're doing, right? It's like... Okay, so they're doing great, but the teacher is having some trouble. I think so, yeah. And and, and maybe this is more of like, you put the salad fork to the 
left of the you know dinner for <laughs> this like the formal chopstick rules or something like that versus the day-to-day maybe oh. well, I, I was very confused at this opener so i don't know if this is true or just like a grouchy criticism like rhetoric or something about complaints about the young generation that doesn't even know how to use chopsticks hashi so maybe that's what the teacher represents, that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have like a shot of the kid like poking his chopsticks through the thing as opposed to like grabbing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, again, it's like kind of like doing it the wrong way. Or Wasn't it the teacher that couldn't pick up the mushroom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the teacher too. Nina Mori even, I think, picks up a single edamame with hers, which is not a useful way to use them either. And she states, yeah, yeah sports, sports are better, are better for sure. sure. So it's like they know how to use them, but they still prefer the Western utensils, right? I had totally missed that Nina Mori made that comment, but mm-hmm. I had had in my notes that I thought Nina Mori was specifically Western. She, she says a few things that are very atypical. And it makes sense because her father has uh, influence and power. So she, he would be closer to uh, American or Western influence than the rest of the town. Sorry, I think I cut somebody off. Well, sports are just awful at everything. They can do everything. Like chopsticks pick stuff up. They do one thing. They do it really well. Sports do like three things. They do them all poorly. I do remember some point in my childhood, just like, just being like, yeah, sporks, sporks? like the way Being to go. Like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> These exist. Why aren't we using them all the time? I was pretty vehemently anti-spork in my childhood. <laughs> so Ben will represent the pro-spork game. Yeah. And I'm going to remain neutral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to battle it out. So uh, Nauta looks like he's severely depressed. He even just like ducks out of the classroom and the, the teacher's so challenged by her chopstick use that she doesn't even notice. It's just his friends that say, hey, hey where's Nauta going? And Nina Mori even has like some flipping comic like he's probably going to get some sporks. And we get some narration by Nauta about how Mist from the Medical Mechanica facility has gotten worse since Haruko and Conti left. And so now he says it covers the whole town. Like when you look at the sky, he says, you're just seeing the mist that it's creating. I couldn't tell by the animation style whether that was metaphorical or not, because obviously he feels that way, but it didn't look that way to me. The sky still looked like you could see beyond it. Yeah, I was going to ask y'all what your impression was, because, you know, it's very ominous, like what he's saying, the wording of it. And then in the scenes, you see like the big hand just looming over everything. Mm -hmm. And just my guess would be like maybe this is a commentary on like industrialization that happened after world war ii during the reconstruction era and like the massive pollution problem that came up out of that part of the natural environment being torn down for industrialization mm-hmm. yeah i mean definitely the stars are one of the first things to go right yeah there's like a particular line there so he says something like the giant hand says you have no choice but to stay stay where you are you have no choice it's like the right hand of a judge or a prison warden about to give the signal for an execution. And then it's like a prison warden giving the signal for an execution. Mm. For the final episode of something, that's a pretty wonderful line. Yeah, near the end, I want to loop back to what we all think the hand is. Yeah, that's probably good. Okay, so yeah, we get that narration from Nauta as he walks away. And then we get this short scene of Commander Amarau and Kitsurubami. Commander Amarau is 
like in shorts on the command floor doing uh, a stationary bike. Yeah. Uh, and they talk about what the hand wants to do, that they think it wants to grab the iron. And then we get this, as we often get from those two, we get these expositional lines that it may want to iron out the wrinkles. And the, the winkles may be, or how we think, right? Mm. Uh, like the wrinkles on the mind. Yeah, gosh, I wish uh, we, we just lost Ben. But, uh, oh no. Like he can probably back this up with science, but like I do recall a correlation between like intellectual prowess and the surface construction of a brain. Uh, it's just based on like autopsies of Albert Einstein and several other people. But yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of, like the iron idiotizing the population. And I did have a political thought about that. Uh, so I was just learning about uh, the rise of militant fascism in Japan leading up to World War II. And one of the things they did mm. was uh, take over public education. And then I've, you know, I've seen this in other countries leading up to World War II, changing what the people become aware of, because that controls like what they can think about, uh, like ideas that might oppose what a dominant power might be playing for. Yeah. Well, in uniformity. Yeah. So I went ahead and listened to y'all's first episode podcast on this. Did a little bit of a little work there. And in the first episode, they mentioned if you control the left side, you control the world because lefties are not typical. Mm-hmm. Typical is right-handed. So in that sense, being different, you know how the rest of the world is thinking. The rest of the world doesn't know how you're thinking. Lefty oh. is non-typical. So being different than the norm, being atypical, non-symmetrical, fucks up everyone's plan. It gives you a power over or against the rest of society uh, from your point of view, just perceptionally. Wow. Yeah, and you're less predictable to them than they are to you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a fun little callback. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, 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 not a problem. We'll figure it out. Um, all we talked about was, wait, but there was something we said that we wanted confirmation from you. Smooth on. brains. Uh, yeah. We, it, it, Have so you we ever talk- called some idiot a smooth brain? <laughs> there is a, I think it's called like lethocephaly or something like that. There are like these kind of like brain conditions that are like that. And that is like a real thing. Like kind of more advanced animals get wrinklier brains. Oh, whoa. So there is something to that, like biologically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but the wrinkles cr- create more surface area in the same space, right? Yeah. So I think it's something kind of like so the outer part of our brain, our cortex, we tend to yeah. think is more involved in like higher processes. But to get kind of a bigger proportion of your brain to be just the outside part, then that outside part has to start kind of like wrinkling in on itself yeah and so then you have yeah i guess if you have more surface area then you have more cortex relative to to other parts of your brain yeah that's fascinating so so they have their little expositional moment in the command center and kitsurabami accidentally drinks from uh amarau's little water bottle thing and freaks out about it which maybe she's a germaphobe but i think she just finds Amarau unattractive, yeah. <laughs> like is not interested <laughs> in him in that way. I think that moment made sense to me more because of a moment that we have later. Yes, she does not want to have any 
intimate <laughs> relations with this guy. Yeah, accidental or not, mm. which is, you know, their kind of uh, stand-ins for older anime, and especially Amaral's like this older perspective on masculinity. Very secretive, very about eyebrows. Eyebrows. <laughs> That's like a trope of anime, right? In FLCO, we subvert that trope, but oftentimes people like don't seem into each other or one doesn't even realize the other has feelings until they accidentally bump into one another and kiss. So I'm a bit new to anime, mm. but it seems like a common cliche is... But you were saying one person being into the other, the other one being aloof or nervous or shy. But that's not something you see a lot in Western media. Like in Hollywood movies, you see love at first sight. Both sides are diving in face first. I think this is probably, we're, we're seeing a, a culture from the outside. You know, there's the specter of be polite in all things, don't offend. And then when you factor in, you know, courtship, fear of acceptance, fear of rejection, the way you respond and interact with these flirtation and advances, it disrupts that dynamic. And then there's this initial response of anxiety, like my response, no matter what, has to be polite and non-offensive. Speaking in general terms. Broad brushstrokes. My understanding of Japanese culture is courtesy is placed very high mm -hmm. on uh, the to-do list. You know, it, it holds a high importance, but Western civilization, specifically America, it seems, you know, the, the more aggressive and crass you are, the more you succeed. It's seems kind of polarized. Yeah, and, and that's definitely a theme throughout this show is the conflict between those two driving factors because obviously the youth is being more and more influenced by Western culture. Sporks and shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Always comes back to those sporks. So we get these shots of, I think, Nauta walking home, and we see that the Nandaba bread shop is no longer serving spicy curry pond. I assume because Haruko is gone and not forcing them to eat it or make it anymore. <laughs> Done with that shit. And then our first shot of Mamimi during this episode, and Mamimi will be a core component, like her and Nauta, the parallels between them become painfully obvious in this episode life is still shitting on her, right? The first thing that happens is she's walking along the, the river with an umbrella and then she gets splashed by a Vespa. Uh, and then she takes down her umbrella because what's the point of yeah. holding it up if you're already soaked? She takes notes. Right, yeah, she's starting to take notes. The book of the guilty, the book of like judgment. This is a common uh, theme in religions is oftentimes there is a book of the guilty or a book of judgment in like Catholicism. There's St. Peter's book of judgment for when you're trying to get into heaven. The book is about uh, meeting out judgment and vengeance. And it's often overseen by a female, a goddess. Mamimi is in a prime position to manifest that archetype. Another generalization, I, I speak it hesitantly, um, but there is another cultural fixation on justice and fairness uh, in at least old school Japanese culture. Uh, mm -hmm. so that's again the first thing that came to my mind when I saw her shit list this isn't right and these wrongs they'll be righted yeah. hmm. well and, and Bohe I mean you you got a pretty unique perspective on the human mind and how it all works I mean generally speaking we see revenge is kind of petty or immature 
It's like, well, if you want to be mature, you seek peace, not revenge. That would, that would be my perspective. Yeah. So justice versus revenge, which is she seeking? Ooh. Hmm. It looks like justice, but it's, it's revenge. Well, she's taking on like a further sense of agency in her life. Ben, what's on your mind? Nothing much. Um, <laughs> I guess sporks, uh, of just, just to continue on. Yeah, just sporks all the way down. But so, so Nauta sees her, you know, I guess he's kind of done with her and, and his friends are kind of surprised that he doesn't go down there to help her out. She's also then, we learn, kind of at a point of moving on. So she has her cell phone out. She's looking at Tasku Kuhn's phone number, thinking about him. And, uh, you know, she she meets the Terminal Core, who will become the new uh, Takun. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But she decides to finally let go, kind of give up this phone that, that has this guy's number and move on. Naota and Mamimi both take these significant steps, right? They've both been integral parts of the, not climax, crisis in the last episode. And now they're both the ones left behind dealing with the aftermath, relatively on their own as well, right? And we'll see that they take it in two different directions. Mamimi, uh, like you said, is ready to move on, but the, the, the mechanism she chooses to use or is presented to her is transference, right? She's not ready to not have a Taku, but she's ready to move on to a different Taku, which is this new mecha Taku, which is pretty awesome. It's like a crab at first. My first impression of this episode was that it was a lot about attachment. Nauta and Mamimi's attachment to each other was definitely destructive. So that's broken, but like as you're saying, they're both having different responses. Is this the scene where Takun starts drinking the black coffee? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, as he's walking with his friends, he's no longer drinking sweet things. Black coffee, uh, which, as you noted while we were kind of watching it, a lot of uh, young people, adolescents, that's when they start their coffee drinking because it is seen as an adult beverage. And ugh, I just love this shot where Mamimi does a big puff of smoke out at Takun and it becomes the mist coming from the medical mechanical yeah. building. It's great imagery. And then on his way home, Nauta is confronted by Commander Amarau who is uh, hanging out in like an industrial supply section of town. Like there are huge concrete pipes uh, mm-hmm. and he has magically somehow gotten his his rabbit scooter up into like the top rung of them and is hanging out inside. <laughs> and Amarau just does what Amarau does. He expositions all over. He explains Haruko and Atoms, Atomusk, their relationship, tells him that it's the pirate king, that he has this crazy NO ability. And then he counsels Nauta saying, look, you're becoming an adult and you should have some protection against the wiles of other people. So here are your own Nori eyebrows, which he doesn't exactly hand them to him. I think he like slaps them on his face. And then Nauta finally returns home. He goes up to his room and just sits there strumming on the This is the V? Oh my gosh, it's amazing. So Haruko, in leaving, completes her personification of, or her parallels with the brother. Yes. At the end of the first episode, uh, Nauta has this line. He says, I regretted thinking it. 
even for a second, but she looked she like, looked like my, my brother. brother. Mm. And now she is. She left this one thing that he doesn't know how to use. It's just this artifact of the relationship that he used to have. In the same way that the, the baseball bat was for the older brother that he had been carrying around in episode one. Exactly. Ooh, that kind of stings, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then just as we're having this somber, wonderful moment, the grandfather calls or came on and the grandfather, I think both call now to down to dinner and boom, everything is chaos again because Haruko has returned. So this is with a scene that made me have another flip on my perspective of this whole series. Naruto coming down and just the abrupt change of tone, right, of Haruko's return to chaos made me think about uh, the times that the Western world has collided with Japan, creating these, like, domino effect of thing that's going to happen later that's going to radically affect the whole country, like going back to Comic Perry and super intense and quick uh, influence of modernization, uh, you know, like the introduction of rifles, which was just this small event that happened on the beaches and then led to the end of like the samurai class and all this other stuff. Uh, and then again, in the 1920s, I think, uh, the influence of Western modernization just in every as aspect of culture, like politics, art, music, fashion, so much, so quick, and this chaotic response. Um, and this scene is total chaos. It's a breakaway from normal anim animation styles again. They do the hyper manga form. Uh, it climaxes with the whole thing breaking down, which anytime in media reality breaks down visually, I'm a big fan. And uh, Kamon can't take it anymore. And his anime form actually like sprouts out. <laughs> and then there's this fascinating shot where... Uh, it's a close-up of Nauta, and then Kamon comes into the frame, and the camera angle goes really extreme. And then the grandfather comes into the frame, and it gets more extreme. And then finally, Mew Mew comes into the frame to crystallize this too many male influences too close. Mm. Again, we like showcase Mew Mew's giant cat balls. <laughs> and that's when Haruko comes in and smashes him in the head again, which does weird things like release a little Superman that flies away. And then Nauta takes a bath. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, he has this moment of uh, recollection. Uh, they play a little audio clip from episode one. You're in a good mood. You're in a good mood. Thinking about Mamimi. Like, has, that, has anyone here, like, had that thing where you had a relationship and you knew it was bad and messed up, but you still fixated on it? Yes. <laughs> I think everyone's done it. Shit, you were the guy who taught me, like, people don't change until the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. A soothing factor of something that you already know. There's comfort in like, well, it's fucked up, but I know which way it's going to be mm. fucked up. You know, the devil you know. Yeah, exactly. And then the devil he knows or thinks he knows is sleeping above him again, right? He should move out on from this relationship. Then there she is. And he thinks she's asleep. He asks first, are you asleep? And then he starts to ask these very plain, honest, soul-crushing questions, right? Like, who are you? Where are you from? Where did you go? And then she surprises him and embarrasses him again and treats it all very flippantly until she's sitting right next to him and he uh, breaks down. And we get, okay, 
in, in just a second, and maybe we'll actually go over that, but in just a second, the scene after this, we get uh, the school children trying to vault over a hurdle. And Nina Mori says that she had a talk with her parents and cried, talked about her feelings and stuff, and then she is the one from the class able to leap over the hurdle, to, like, get past this thing. And this is the same moment. It's not as constructive and healing as Nina Mori's is, but this is the same moment for Nauta. He breaks down and crying, he hugs her and just asks, where did you go? go? You left without saying anything. And just being honest with his feelings is what allows him to at least break out of his depression for the episode. And that unlocks her offer, right? She offers, do you want to come with me? Well, and where did you go in that context isn't so much a question of where, it's a question of what. That's his way of asking, what's more important to you than me mm-hmm. that you'd bounce so quick? Wow. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Just tingles. Uh, and we do get a little voiceover that says uh, there really is a world outside and Haruko's bracelet twitches. And that's when we move on to the class doing, uh, I guess it's gym class and everyone is Super proud yeah. of Nina Mori for vaulting over the uh, the hurdle. Uh, this is what made me speculate about Nina Mori uh, earlier in our show. She advises uh, saying what you feel, like speaking out to her parents and crying and getting over it. That's like very atypical. Like Japanese people just generally don't say I love you, even to their own children. And getting back to this uh, specter of uh, always being polite and not offending, um, that has an influence on your social filters, like how much you self-disclose, how real and honest you are. So earlier in the scene, like Naota does what she was talking about. Like he says how he feels and he cries, which I think in the context of this culture, that's extreme. And I couldn't help to think that it was maybe feelings that carried over from his brother, like not exactly displacement, but just some sort of emotional resonance. Is that what happened with him and his brother? Did he leave without saying goodbye? And then I think, too, we have this absent mother that kind of never is really addressed at all. But, you know, as as Nauta cries out to Haruko, you know, he kind of nestles his head in her like bosom. And, you know, that you can take that in kind of a more sexual way. But there's definitely also some kind of like mother son kind of imagery going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't take it as arousing at all, but it was definitely intimate, but it's significant. Yeah. And then along with kind of interspersed between the gym class scene, we get to check in with Mamimi. And Mamimi actually overnight has been stealing cell phones and feeding them to Mecha Takun. Yeah. And so she has this uh, list of people who have wronged her in some way, people she's pissed off at and very quickly decides that because he's growing, she needs to move on to bigger and bigger things. Almost almost growing off of her feelings because it's not really providing her any solace. Like she's getting some sort of thrill out of seeking out revenge on people, but it's not making her feel better. It's not, it's actually making her feel worse. And by the time we connect the two stories again, she wanders out of an alleyway and happens upon Gaku and Masumu. And one 
one of them says, oh, that's Naoto's wife. I wonder where she's been. I, I guess Naoto ditched her. And she hears this, looks over, and has this moan of just like, fuck you. And she looks like she's been oh, yeah. all night Nakatakun around eating things. So she does not feel better. She feels like shit, smoking cigarettes all night. And that one little look is enough to key Mekatakun to attack the two schoolboys. I think they, it eats the three-wheel truck, and she tries to stop it, but it's beyond mm. that point now. Before we get too far, I'm curious, Bob, do you have any uh, thoughts about that three-wheeled truck? <laughs> very, very, very Eastern. I mean, the only Western three-wheeled vehicles you really see are British, and the Reliant Robin, and those are just mostly known to be least reliable vehicle ever. But I think that that's probably a Daihatsu. So this creature is consume, like destroying something that's very specifically Eastern. Yeah, I mean, from tuk-tuks to K-cars, you know, small engines, small weight is very Eastern. Big engines, heavy, gnarly muscle cars, very, very Western. So is it like the the hegemony of technological advancement that it is taking cell phones and vehicles these former means of conveyance and incorporating them into itself it's a consumer there is a lot of eating going on like there's a lot of consumption when Uh, conti consumes geez i forgot his name you know he gets more powerful but less sustainable yeah and we got uh uh just before this the scene of Haruko and Nauta eating vending machine ramen and the impulsiveness of Haruko <laughs> getting the biggest one she could find and it tasting terrible and not thinking about it. Well, and I'm guilty of that all the time. I sift my consumer ass through the fluorescent wonderland of Wally World, finding the biggest, cheapest shit and looking at, you know, okay, what's the cost per ounce? So going, oh, well, that one tastes super duper good. Yeah, so another... Uh difference between uh, American and Japanese uh, consumption. Japanese cuisine has always been prided on what's seasonal, local, fresh, you know, and of like the highest artisanship uh, in its production. Uh, and here we have ramen that's just supersized. Very American. Oh, supersized. What a, ugh, what a horrible combination of words. Yeah. And I, I guess a lot of the convenience stores you have like 7-Elevens and these places called Lawson that, you know, are these kind of big international or American brands. I remember when I was in the U.S., I met at least one person who was surprised that there were 7-Elevens in the U.S. They just like assumed it was like a Japanese company because in some ways this convenience stores like are such a part of city life now. Or something. Your friend is right. Like, uh, Convenience stores, like especially 7-Eleven itself, is so Japanese now. It has very little resemblance to a, an American 7-Eleven. A side note, I do know the Japanese jingle for 7-Eleven. <laughs> 7 11 ikibu. <laughs> yeah, no, no Slurpees. <laughs> In Japan, do they have stereotypes about the 7-Elevens like we do here? Like- um, the, the only negative association I can recall is like shut-ins would maybe shop exclusively from a convenience store, their local neighborhood shop, uh, because they're not cooking for themselves. But uh, 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 the the positive association is that unlike American franchises, like something like a 7-Eleven convenience store will have 
stock that's from local manufacturers and some of it might actually be organic also seasonal yeah you can get a lot of yeah a lot better kind of like fresh food like you can get like sushi and stuff like that you know it's not going to be like great sushi, <laughs> just like uh, the, 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 the fried chicken like from- <laughs> and doesn't seem gross so what's the japanese equivalent of a big bite at a 7-eleven like I mean, curry pond or something like that. Something I always thought was gross. So I, I don't know if you're like, you know, like what's like the good food to get or if you're like, what's the most disgusting food? <laughs> I don't know how you feel about the food bites. But, uh, well, Ben, like, w- but did the, you have a favorite? Well, th- so there's Odin, which is this like seasonal food that's like kind of like eggs and potatoes and stuff in this like soup. And sometimes in the winter at the convenience stores, you could just like go up to the counter and like ladle out this Odin from this like vat that's just been sitting there like who knows how long. (laughs) And to me, I was always just like, this seems super unhygienic. Like I'm surprised that anyone ever does this. But Uh, my, my personal favorite from Japanese convenience stores was kareage. It's just like fried chicken, but it's like marinated in something maybe. Like bone-in chicken? Yeah, bone-in. Really good. So, and then we also get interspersed in here, uh, Miss Miyagi visits Kamon to discuss Naoto's absences because now he's like explicitly skipping classes. I love that when we come in on her, she's listening to Kamon drone on and she looks like she's about to have an anger stroke. Yeah. I wish I was more anime literate because I had a suspicion with this scene because he's talking about this <laughs> hamster that he was responsible for from the class as a kid. Mm-hmm. And Studio Head Gainax had just finished an etchy version of a very popular hamster show called Hamatero. <laughs> and I wonder, like, what if that hamster died in that show? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, and they don't really get anywhere. Uh, uh, yeah, he tells the story about killing the hamster. Uh, and he says, but did anyone in the class uh, think about how I felt? They were all calling me hamster killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we pretty quickly go into the climax. Uh, and there's a couple of things leading up to it. First, we see, we check back in with Amarao and Kitsurubami. They're driving around looking for the terminal core and the car they're in is still damaged from the last episode because all of its windows got blown out when a 10 foot tall shotgun shell landed next to them. Then Amarao puts a move on Kitsurubami, which was super gross. And she very quickly is like, yeah, this is not, I'm not interested in this. This is a problem. We don't touch me. But we unfortunately don't get to examine that scene any further. Probably a lot of people like that we skip over it very quickly because it is uh, this word you love using and I love you for using it, uh, confrontational. And they see, oh, Mamimi tied to the, because of the leash she was leading Mekatakun around on, she's like, stuck to it by her neck uh, being led around, which that happens a lot in this show. And they witness, it's just like awesome plot. Like who should happen to be at that street corner? Okay, Conti is there and Conti is dressed up in a skirt and jacket as if to hide from people, but still has just like TV face (laughs) visible. So awesome. Uh, and the terminal core, Mechatakun, absorbs Kanti. And the many-eyed cosmic monster part of 
Conti that we saw eat uh, Nauta in previous episodes becomes the face and head of the Mecha Takun, which is just fucking awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. Like you said, we're getting this synthesis uh, because Mecha Takun had represented kind of a Conti for Mamimi, this, this magical robot that came out of nowhere and helped Mamimi realize or fulfill some of her power fantasy. Uh, and now the two of them have combined and everything is spinning out of control. So maybe one of you can help clear something up for me. Uh, when we first see Conti, it emerges out of Naota's head battling the hand of the next mech. But if it's part of the terminal core, I don't understand where the why the conflict was taking place in the first episode then. I think there are multiple robots like Conti inside that facility or wherever, right? He's not like a unique robot, but I think Conti is influenced by or inhabited by Atomus. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why Conti has different. Yeah, that's why he behaves differently when he comes out of Nauta's head. So if Medical Mechanica represents some larger concept or entity and Conti comes from that, then maybe it's suggesting that within the empire that is medical mechanica, maybe there's agents that are not aligned or conflicted at least. Ooh, that makes me feel better about being an American. <laughs> and so it absorbs Conti. It has what we think is like a final form and it, it leaps and starts flying towards the hand. It also takes Commander Amarau with it. Like, I guess they got out of the car, they got too close, and Amarau somehow ends up stuck to the terminal core as well. So they fly up to the hand, and Haruko and Nauta arrive on the scene to see this, and then she, on the Vespa, flies them up to the hand too with a wonderful line about, it's the climax. They finally get up there and it starts as a confrontation between Amarau and Haruko's wants and now to standing between the two of them, right? And there's this wonderful line where Amarau says, she doesn't care about you. She's just using you to get what she wants as he's pointing a gun at a 12 year old. And like, why would he listen to you if you're if you're like pointing a gun at him? And so obviously Nauta, well, I don't know, obvious to me, he sides with Haruko because he's just been bonding with her in this imperfect way for most of this episode at least. And so he wants to help her in whatever endeavor she has, which into the terminal core, right? So the hand wants to consume the younger generation. I think it wants to control them. And in order to control them, it needs to consume the best and brightest minds of the generation. Like in order to shape the way the next generation thinks, you will need to co-opt or put on your payroll the influencers of that generation. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, again, this scene, I was immediately thinking of attachment again. And I was looking at Naota as having no good choices even though like he did have this great road trip thing with Haruko, um, his choice is ultimately taken away by Haruko. So he doesn't have inform he doesn't give informed consent. And Amura is not wrong, right? Like, like she says as much that she doesn't give a shit about this planet and whatever. 
into things smooth, I guess. She is just using now to for her purposes, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like you said, he yeah he doesn't have any good choices. Uh, yeah. So he gets eaten by the terminal core. The terminal core transforms and becomes the center of this hand. The hand activates, but. Now that he's inside of the hand, which I guess is a pocket dimension in which I assume Atomusk is also imprisoned, he taps into that power, breaks out of the dimensional prison, and when he comes out... He got the powers of the Pirate King, Atomusk! He's got not only his own flying V, but this iconic uh, Atomusk's Gibson EB-01, something like that. And so now he is, yeah, he's like synthesis now. It's yeah. like his, not someone else's power unru- unbound, but like his own. Like he's still channeling something through it. Atomusk is like a god of creativity in this allegory, yeah. but he is actualized. Yeah, did, did we already cover this? Was there some association with that Gibson? Uh, I mean, Gibsons are all made in America, either mm-hmm. in Bozeman, Montana, or... Tennessee. Um, they've never been made outside of America, just like Rickenbacker. Hmm. He's colored red, which is at least codes him to be a parallel between or a personification of the older brother. Oh. Um, because of the red bat. That's the only color uh, symbolism we have hmm. with Tascoon hmm. so far. Yeah. I, I, and then I guess also Atomisk and like kind of like the red Conti, right? We've had red be um, Atomus's color too. I was going to say when he uh, merges with the hand or when the terminal core merges with the hand and then that kind of like gear forms, the, the symbols appear and it's kind of very similar to the stuff that's on Conti's face when he kind of gets activated, but it's sort of the opposite. So then this time we have like split up the kind of character for small and for person and so that forms kind of a not typical word for like child or little person or something like that. But then it's kind of, it's the, in some ways, opposite word to the the word for adult, because it's like the small person versus large person. Oh, so just like the terminal core like fits to this mold, it's trying to fit Nauta, the younger generation into this subservient role. And he rejects that, right? That's why when he comes out as this like red comet that he has the atomisk symbol, the the big person symbol, like you said, that kind of forms uh, adult. Yeah. That's really cool. But yeah, and I guess it, it kind of like, I got the feeling, you know, that uh, Haruko finishing the hand or whatever, this wasn't to activate the hand and do whatever medical mechanica wants to do, but just that was the thing that would kind of pry uh, atomisk out of there. I mean, so we do see Conti is the one holding it up first, right? And we kind of think, oh, that's Atomisk. But then Nauta emerges, or his power goes into Nauta. It seems like she kind of maybe wanted the power to go into her instead. Yeah, she explicitly states, like, I'm the one who's going to eat him. Haruko is very upset about this. She's like, no, 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 no. You were supposed to get Atomusk out and I was supposed to eat him. You're not supposed to have that power and immediately goes to attack him. She's using consumer language again. Oh my gosh, she's so America. Oh my gosh. Okay, I have a final take there. So they have this spectacular air battle and then you had something about 
Nauta's appearance here, like the two guitars was symbolic of something or reminiscent of something, Brian? Yeah, the whole action climax um, felt very super robot to me. You know, like the wide shots of mechs fighting and doing those figure eight attack patterns. Mm -hmm. But the two guitars, sometimes called axes in metal terminology, and the red coloring reminded me of Getter Robo, one of the more popular Super Robot shows. And um, he looked very much like the leader of that trio, Ryoma, uh, when they do the, the super thing. Like these mechs have like their finishing thing. You know, like in Power Rangers, they go Megazord or whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll form Star Dragon, turn bright red, and like that's the big finishing move right and it wields two axes yes oh yeah i'm sorry yeah so it wields two axes it does the star dragon attack and then it's funny like naoto's finishing move is telling haruko he loves her it's like he knows this isn't really what he wants like he can channel this atomisk power but ultimately he doesn't want to hold on to it Like if it's an allegory for creativity, then it will pass from person to person as the zeitgeist needs it. And so he stops, relinquishes his red form. He just goes regular Nauta again. And then with a little blush on his face, tells Haruko, I love you. And it is this uh, soft rejection or maybe hard rejection of normal Japanese, uh, or I'm sorry, typical historical Japanese public conduct, right? You said like, you don't say that to someone. You don't just like be like, I love you. No. You like have to go through all of this rigmarole and these traditions and these forms in order to get to that state. Yeah. Bob, maybe you can comment on this, but like the, the double neck guitar, um, my only association with that would be like Jimmy Page, like some performer that's recognized as a virtuoso. Yeah, I mean, you, you gotta have a good comprehension of both instruments, guitar and bass, or 12 string guitar and six string guitar. I mean, there's been a few mm. different types of double neck guitars. Um, going back to Rush and Getty Lee, I think Getty Lee had a double neck for a while i think it was a six string guitar and a four string bass on a double neck and it was rickenbacker are we suggesting like naota had some kind of existential transformation while merged with atomisk is that the suggestion that he's he's atomisk well and, and so i think when uh Nauta's red that's kind of like him the atomisk form but like actually right before that kind of kiss finale, whatever, you know, the red, there you have a little sponic boom thing. Yeah, exactly. It turns into this red halo. And then I think you're back to just Nauta. And then we see that big red Phoenix bird thing, which I guess then is Atomisk. Yeah, which is like, I don't know, the potential of a new generation or like, I don't know, but it's wonderful. And it's a, visually stunning climax to the action of the series. The, the the emotional climax is, I love you, Haruko. But then immediately afterwards, we can have this save the day moment where we take this evil facility, Medical Mechanica, and just, just fly away with it, right? Or does it leave the iron? Oh, it, it topples it. Okay, it topples it. Okay, yeah. good. And then there's just a little bit of aftermath. Nauta has one last moment with Haruko where Haruko kind of jokingly chides him about, well, it's your fault, Nauta. Like, I lost him again and you did this. But do you want to come with me? 
just kidding, you're still a kid, which is kind of a soft offer to him. Like, she wasn't really offering, but she was like, hey. She pauses, right? I like, yeah. I feel like that last thing of like, just kidding, you're, it's like, of course not. You're just a kid or something like that. But she like waits and he just doesn't respond, right? Yeah. So she flies off, you know, see you around sometime. And then she leaves the Rickenbacker. So instead of having his own guitar, the Atomist guitar, he's still on this pile of rubble holding this iconic bass. And then Mamimi comes up, and Mamimi's animated in a different way now. Like, she looks almost like the, the visual cues are there, her outfit and her hair, but like her nose and the way her face looks, it's like she's a different person, solidifying her transformation away from vengeance and wanting to be a creative force in the world instead of a destructive one. And she starts her career as a photojournalist very early and just takes this beautiful shot of like shadowed shot of Nauta on top of the rubble. And we even get, I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be Kamon Zine or another like more official magazine, but we see that picture as we fade into the next shot or no, as, as we go into the last, like the ending shots of Nauta's room again with the Rickenbacker. Yeah, I feel like Mamimi gets a happy ending. She probably gets the happiest ending out of anyone. She get she's like free. Mm-hmm. She like walks away to another town and I'm sure her life is not going to be easy, but she has like a driving force now. And it's a creative one. She has this instinct to bring people to justice and she wants to be a photojournalist. So like that's a great way to start that career. Then we get tiny bit of aftermath where the the kids, Gaku, Masmoon, uh, Nina Mori, and Nauta are all starting high school, I assume? Middle school. Middle school. Okay. So they're in, because they're in these uh, new black, very formal uniforms. Very Japanese. Yeah. But everything is a cycle. So we have to end kind of where we began, but from a different perspective. Nauta puts money into a machine to get a drink. And Nina Mori leans in and hits a button for him. And it's something he didn't want to drink. It's not because it's too sweet or too sour or whatever, though. This time it's because, at least he says, it's too carbonated. They, they, they translate it as carbonated, but I think it's like spicy. I don't know. Like you see this like hot pepper on the drink and the word is the same word you use for spicy. Maybe you use it for too carbonated too. But I wondered if they were just like, oh, like a spicy drink won't make sense. So we're just going to switch it to carbonated. It looked like one of those popular Japanese energy drinks, uh, just the shape of the bottle. Do they do spicy energy drinks? Spicy. Well, I mean, they're like, if, if Red Bull is spicy, <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> they throw a lot of ginger in there. Yeah, it has like a it has like a red pepper on the, the label if you look at it. It could be like a tamarind or I don't know. What's that stuff called? The Guarana. Guarana? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. High high caffeine. We end with this very uplifting, like a lot of possibility. And they they even cross the bridge one more time. Uh, Just this beautiful symbolism to close us out from this really transformative series. Um, I know we're going a little bit long, but I wanted to give if any, if everybody has the time, if everyone has, uh, or if anyone had any ending thoughts, like overall takes to the series. Well, just specifically on the ending, I do feel like uh, Naoto gets a happy ending as well. Even Mm -hmm. though uh, Nino Mori busts his chops a little bit, you know, says he looks stupid in that uniform. I feel like that's meaningful as well because Naoto is not the same person anymore. He's a synthesis person and he's in a very traditional Japanese uniform, which doesn't fit who he is now. Oh, wow. 
Oh. He's also hanging. He's not. It's not a boy and a girl under a bridge now. It's him with his age-appropriate peers doing this jabby, flirty thing with a very age-appropriate girl. It's the normal, <laughs> healthy picture of adolescence. Yeah. So I, I don't really have as many comments as questions about this overall thing. So like watching this episode, I mentioned before, like I was seeing a lot of attachment themes and then it started to turn into instead of interpersonal attachment themes, like national attachment themes, like, holy shit, is this whole series about the weird relationship between Japan and the US and how weird and complicated that relationship is that there's been damage between the two and benefits, good feelings and bad feelings and good attachments and bad attachments. And where does that leave people? It's messy, man. It's really freaking complicated. And I apologize if I'm making this about me, but I did internalize a lot of that. I don't think it's been said on the show yet, but my father is an American. My mother's Japanese. My father was in the military stationed in Japan when he met my mother. Uh, so there's a lot of this internal conflict of cultures within myself. So that might be where some Holy shit, it's you, dude. You're now, <laughs> you're the synthesis. Yeah, so it's tough. And like, maybe this is part of why I've been so uh, hesitant to make certain generalizations, but my unique perspective comes from not just my own experience, but my mother's experience, who was not a typical Japanese. She was someone who was very outspoken. Uh, she was a runaway at the age of 18 uh, and did a lot of very industrious things for herself. Uh, then my cousin, who uh, lived with us during her college years, was also a very atypical Japanese, another person who was also very outspoken. And uh, I got to hear their perspectives on a, a lot of Japanese culture, like criticisms about speaking up or not speaking up, uh, certain aspects of Japanese culture and history that they didn't like and did like. Uh, and same with the U.S., like the things they loved about America and hated about America. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this really is a like at its core, like kind of a coming of age story. And maybe as kind of like a teenager in Japan, maybe that's like, like part of that, like constructing your own identity is looking at the Japanese influences and the outside influences that, uh, you know, like maybe especially in this show, like Western music or something like that, that you might idolize some figures like that. And like, how do you incorporate the, the things you're hearing from those songs or whatever into mm -hmm. your uh, kind of a, a stable thing that works in your, in your environment, right? A personal synthesis. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have my answers to these questions. Um, my only speculation is that Naota represents like the unanswered question, but like the other uh, members of the cast, like who do they represent to you? Like who does Haruko and Mamimi and Nina Mori and uh, Amarau? Like uh, it, it is kind of interesting too that like uh, that the Amarau agency is this like some sort of like immigration agency or something like that. Like, <laughs> like they're the like immigration police or something. What is it? You you had written a note about this. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, this came from the Fooly Cooly wiki. Um, it, it spells out boy. <laughs> <laughs> Bureau of Interstellar Immigration. Immigration. <laughs> mm. Oh, so they literally are like the men in black. Well, like so speed round. Like who does who does Haruko seem to symbolize for you? I mean, I feel like you guys convinced me this episode it is like the US. Wouldn't medical mechanica also represent the US? 
Yes, but Haruko, Medical Mechanica is like the the hegemony, the the industrial or uh, uh, corporate nature of the U.S. It, maybe it's hard to separate these two things. Haruko is the music of the U.S. Like, you know, she brings in a Rickenbacker. She... Uh, brings in a scooter. She like a lot of things about her scream punk. And she's even the previous generation to Nauta, right? Which uh, you describe somewhere in here as the lost generation in Japan. And there's specifically and personally, uh, I think more and more, especially in this episode, she is the older brother. And I know that that to take that literally is very strange because there are these sexual components to it, which is not where I'm trying to take this. But watching this episode, I thought there was actually a pretty compelling uh, trans reading of her character. It's like the brother went off to America and came back as a different person. Mm. Like came back as not only instead of being, well, she still is a baseball star in the one episode we get to see her prowess, but she's also a musician. She's also, she, uh, you know, uh, Toskun has left as this older brother, but come back as this older sister. And, and the whole relationship is now very confusing because how do you relate to that now? It's, it's like she is a stranger, right? Yeah, and and kind of going back to the the like cultural influence thing, then you know it might be riffing on the idea of like there are the direct cultural influences, like the Americans who come and live in Japan, but then there's also the Japanese people that go off to America and then come back, you know, influenced by that culture, also then wanting to to change Japan or you know, no longer fitting into Japan or something like that. Definitely. You know, I don't see the medical mechanica as a country or a people group as much as it is the advanced weaponry, right? You know, you could say it represents oh, wow. nukes, you know, the A-bombs that so massively affected Japan, but it, overall it could also represent the military industrial complex, the whole concept of capitalism meets warfare right and the steam being this you know kind of mushroom cloud on the horizon at all times yeah. i mean it is how you i mean what's the best way to whitewash a region is to destroy the people or install your own into the area wow you know, so it's an iron that makes everything <laughs> the same it whitewashes the area yeah, or, or yeah like flattening yeah. something right like a bomb flattens something an iron flattens something yes right? i mean there's an also an interesting parallel like in just in terms of the military industrial complex like, like this medical mechanica building this giant iron it seems like a, a parallel to commodore perry's ships first showing up mm. it's just this undeniable presence that's there and it has to to be dealt with it's a part of your new reality now well i mean wasn't japan's first major interaction with america i mean their first real interactions with us military based yes wasn't it? i mean mm -hmm. you know our whole interaction nation to nation started with vessels of of war and baseball so something <laughs> that's right Something too, yeah. wondering if like, um, th so there's the interaction between Nauta and Haruko where like he gets Atomisk's power and then she's like, wait, no, like you're not supposed to have that. Like I'm supposed to have that. 
you know, one of the interesting things with the relation between the Japan and U.S. is like Japan doesn't have nuclear weapons, right? We have right. nuclear no, weapons, no. but we're like, no, no, you guys don't have them. Like, you guys don't have a military. We'll put our bases here so you don't need a, a military because, like, we'll take care of it for you. And then you can imagine, what's his name, like Amaro or someone being like, like, are they really, like, are they really looking out for us? Like, are they really, like, mm -hmm. taking care of us? Or are they just, like, using us for their own desires? Just just to highlight the sort of national attachment disorder here, part of the treaty at the end of World War II was not just the U.S. bases being placed in Japan, Japan not being allowed to have a standing army, which I'm okay with that. Uh, they do have the Japanese Defense Force. The SDF, right? Yeah. So, like, the U.S. could decide what Japan could or couldn't do with national lands. And since U.S. wanted more lumber, like certain uh, forest areas that were considered sacred then had to be torn down to feed America's thirst for more lumber. One of the worst things was a part of a treaty where the U.S. could decide if they wanted to put private Western capitalists on the boards of Japanese-owned companies. Uh, that's super fucked up. Yeah. Once Japan as a nation sort of created this thing like, oh, we need to really invest in our economy and become like, that'll be the key to our reconstruction. Like there was very significant social things that were happening. Like people were working these extra long hours for the rebuilding of the nation. This like crazy stuff. And it worked like they produced quality stuff that was pretty affordable. And then that became a threat to the U S economy. And then Japan was labeled a something like paper tigers or <laughs> different terms. Like there's, yeah, so like then these like really oppressive tariffs were put on Japanese exports. And I feel like maybe that's what a lot of this stuff was about in the, the Fooly Cooly show, highlighting commercial goods and cars and electronics, uh, even the look of Conti himself. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it really struck me in a, in a really odd way. Well, you mentioned... Uh the tariffs and the taxes yeah. that got placed on Japanese goods. Fun little fact, that's how the Subaru Brat came to our shores the way it did with two seats in the back in the bed yeah. of the truck with no seatbelts. Hmm. So <laughs> what? The, uh, what was called the chicken tax. It was a tax on Japanese chicken and egg products and light trucks. And so because it had two seats in the back, it was not considered a light truck and was not subjected to that tax. Fun little fact about the Subaru Brat, Ronald Reagan owned one. Hospital closed, no. Uh -oh. Now I gotta go work in a damn pet store. I'd like that. You can thank Ronald Reagan and ask for that. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Your legacy is intact. <laughs> <sighs> You know, the whole thing struck me as this, again, a, a really weird attachment dynamic where like one person sort of holds more power, which was a theme in Fooly Cooly. There was just a lot of relationships now to have where the other person was holding the power. I, I, I don't mean to like just paint Japan as this victim and like we have to have all of our sympathies on Japan. Like, again, this is a, another part of my internally conflicted identity. But um, Amarau, I had very conflicted feelings about this guy as well. He felt very much to me like old guard Japan. Quick, lightning fast history. Uh, there was the feudal, like warring states period. Uh, Western influences come, guns come, everything changes. And then, you know, there's the emperor, the real powers in these warlords, oligarchs, basically. And the samurai class benefits from that very greatly. And then there's another resurgence of Western influence and modernization. 
Uh, the samurai class is irrelevant. Uh, there's a new militia. Children of the samurai get installed into the militia. And the reaction is like, they don't like the way Japan is going. It's too Western. It's too modern. Like mm -hmm. what's up with like women voting now? What's up with these neat ideas in like multiple political parties in their British inspired parliament? You know, what's what with like these fusions of Western and Eastern art and music and fashion, they want to go back to the good old days to make Japan great again. Well, what is that? It's when the oligarchs ruled mm. and the military had more power and it didn't benefit the peasants. It oppressed them. And those are the good old days they wanted to go back to. And that's the vibe I got off this Amaro guy. Like he's very controlling. He's very inappropriate in his power dynamic and the way he interacts with subordinates, mm -hmm. uh, but he's very seductive too. He's cool and has like this way of talking to Naota, gives him these bushy eyebrows, <laughs> whatever. He's seductive, but he doesn't care about Naota. He's mm -hmm. after the same thing. He wants power. He wants things to go his way. So he's a fascist? Uh, you said he wanted to make Japan great again, right? <laughs> that's the feeling I had. <laughs> okay. I think I agree with you completely. So again, you know, complicated, not a lot of great choices for Naota or the younger generation of Japan. Yeah, but I mean, he makes, he, it's a, like when he says, I love you, he takes power in that relationship. Yeah. He puts his emotions and his needs as a priority, which they had not been in this relationship with Haruka before. It, actually, they had not been in any of his uh, uh, relationships with women. So I just dominated the conversation there for a bit. So <laughs> any other thoughts that y'all had about any of the other characters? I got nothing. I'm confused okay. as hell by the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, uh, I guess, I do have the feeling that, like, I think all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, it, it is one of those shows that, like, I don't think we're, I don't think we're seeing patterns that aren't there. Like, it feels like a lot of this stuff is like very intentional, and I don't think it like perfectly fits like a lock and a key, but it's just kind of like these themes and like feelings, mm -hmm. and they're just like so layered. Um, and, you know, I think early on, we talked a lot about some of the like sexuality and like puberty metaphors. And I think too this idea of like maybe the creativity and the creative process. And I felt with some of the stuff with the hand like that um, quote from the beginning about like this ever present hand that kind of like forces you to stay in this place and, and feels like it's ultimately going to decide whether you live or die mm. you know maybe the hand is the thing and it, it's like often like like we see it kind of making this stop sign with it um, <laughs> yeah. and it's kind of like the thing that's like holding you back right so there are these ideas and these things bursting from Nauta's head but then there's there's something that like stops you from doing it and I think having um, you know, Mimimi become a photographer at the end and, and stuff like that, that I think, you know, one of the themes of this is overcoming the challenges to doing creative things, the chaos from trying to make it happen. Mm. Yeah. And maybe the necessity of breaking boundaries in order to do those things. Like Mimimi specifically leaves town. Like she doesn't stay in the town and become a journalist. She has to go beyond the boundaries of the town mm -hmm. in order to go after that dream. Yeah, I love it. 
I have two final thoughts. One is that Conti is a TV because he has to be a TV because that is where the otaku specifically and more generally the younger generation of Japan is getting their new cultural lessons mm. and where a lot of young otaku are getting their lessons on uh, masculinity. Uh, and the other one was there is a weird parallel in this episode specifically to Gamera 3. <laughs> which came out the same year, 1999, uh, The Revenge of Iris, which is a revenge-based plot where a kind oh. of Amara um, called Iris or Iris fuses with a young woman who feels wronged by specifically Gamera, but more by like the world at large and wreaks havoc, not eating people's stuff, but instead consuming whole human beings and then becoming so large that the girl can no longer control it anymore, which I thought was just awesome. So plug for that movie. It is a wonderful take on a modernization of uh, kaiju films. Uh my final thoughts are just saying uh, a couple of thank yous. Uh, number one to Ben for recommending Fooly Cooly. Uh, I didn't say this, but when you first suggested it, I was skeptical. My recollection was that Fooly Cooly was just a bunch of dick and fart jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and had, there are there. I had no idea that I would go on this like introspective journey because I it did make me think about a lot of things and ask a lot of questions and do some different t- type of research. Uh, and then I also want to thank Studio Gainax. Uh, I feel like the show doesn't dictate any certain conclusions, uh, but maybe they just intended you to really think about things, which I did. And uh, I like where it took me. Yeah. Amazing. Any any thoughts, Bob? No, more questions than thoughts. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, my like Brian, my recollection of it was like, oh, just something weird that doesn't make any sense. And then... <laughs> turns out i just didn't have the knowledge to make sense of it and uh with a little bit more information it it paints a lot more of a picture but still a damn confusion show Uh, what was that uh, quote from an anime creator that anime should be felt more than understood oh yeah watanabe uh he's the one that Mm. said that at the uh convention at the kennedy center yeah thanks for being on Bob, really yeah. appreciate it. You were an invaluable resource to have on, a wonderful participant. Is there anything you'd like to plug? So there is one charity that uh, I feel like fits in some of the themes with Fooly Cooly and militarism. Uh, and that charity is Veterans for Peace. Uh, it's a good friend of mine, pretty involved with them. And they're one of those charities where it's like, well, if Garrett trusts it, so do I. Uh, he's a stand-up guy, served several tours in the Middle East, uh, and is the biggest voice I know personally for uh, diplomacy and democracy. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. I'll, I'm sure they have a website I can find. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's at veteransforpeace.org. Thank you. And um, uh, we like to take recommendations from guests. Uh, if someone enjoyed Fooly Cooly, what do you think they might enjoy music or uh, or shows or something that you've enjoyed in the past? Well, I mean, if you like shows that have Gibsons in them, you can't go wrong with Death Clock Metalocalypse. <laughs> uh, One of my favorites. Plenty of Gibsons in that show. Music-wise, I don't know. The pillows just always felt like a Japanese Weezer to me. Japaneser, if you will. <laughs> um, some music that'll challenge you. In new and interesting ways, Fooly Cooly is a challenging show. 
Uh, one of my favorite bands right now is uh, Soko Ninaru. Talented young sons of bitches. I assume they've got some stuff on YouTube that maybe we can link to. Uh, yeah, they've got a ton on YouTube. Uh, it's just a three-piece band that shouldn't be able to make the sounds that they do. <laughs> just like uh, the pillows. The way that they do. <laughs> uh, but it'll blow your mind into outer space. Nice. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you. Uh, and I'm sorry, do we, I hope I didn't steamroll you, Ben. Did no, you have other final no, thoughts? No, if, if we're wrapping up, I just want to check. So the, the plan is we're going to maybe take a week or two off. Or I'm, this is kind of from the listener's perspective. So we'll be back in a couple weeks um, with a new season. And we are going to do Gundam Origins. Is that right? Yeah, Gundam The Origin. Uh, sometimes it has a subtitle of Rise of the Red Comic. There's a couple of different formats you can find it in. But uh, yeah, that's what we'll be covering. So, so this is one that I'm completely unfamiliar with. Um, so I'm excited for it. I think, uh, Brian, when you when you said the thing about uh, you weren't sure about FLCL, uh, I think when I first heard we were doing a, a Gundam, I was like, "Hmm, I don't, I don't know if this is, <laughs> if this is like completely my my wheelhouse." But I think I'm I'm getting more excited yeah. to to check it out and and learn yeah. from you guys what it's about. Yeah, it's it's just a bunch of dick and fart jokes and some sports. <laughs> <laughs> I think in my head, it's like I think I have a very like Amaral vision of it, where it's just going to be like all of these like burly serious men like walking down corridors and like talking about like military strategy or something. Okay. There is some of that, (laughs) but less than you'd think. I promise. (laughs) Yeah. We'll see you all very soon. Yeah. And thanks Bob. I'll, uh, I'll be in touch with you later. Okay. Of course, bud. All right. Pen. Pen. Pals. Foodie cootie.
Lord Cantine, bless me with your kiss, your absolution. リストがそういう話じゃなくてですねですこ,のこういう方面のクリックリっていうねだから
star.